Welcome back everyone to Aspire to Lead, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua Dub underscore Stamper. Welcome back to the Aspire to Lead podcast, and I'm so excited to have a good friend of the podcast back on with me, Tom Shimmer, who is an independent education author, speaker, and consultant. And I am so excited to talk about his new book, Concise Answers to Frequently Asked Questions, and having a lot of discussion about assessment and grading. I know these are topics he may be sick of talking about because he talks about it 24-7, seven days a week, but I'm so excited to have you back on the show. How are you doing, man? Josh, great to be here. Good to see you. I never get tired of talking about assessment, that's for sure. <laughs> I knew that, but I like giving you a bad time. You, it seems like you are traveling the world, and I love keeping up with you on social media because it's like, where where's Waldo? Or <laughs> where in the world is Carmen San Diego? But it's yeah. Tom Shimmer. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's uh, the weekly work, and it's been great for the last year or so to be back traveling and, and visiting with folks and doing the workshops and... I get a lot from them as much as I give to them. Mm-hmm. I certainly engage with teachers constantly about their assessment practices, fielding questions, and uh, it's just very rewarding work, and I, I never tire of it. So looking forward to uh, our conversation today, my friend. Awesome. So, Tom, if they didn't have a chance to listen to your prior episode because you were on Aspire to Lead before, if anyone hasn't listened to that, make sure you jump on that episode because Tom provides so much value as far as your background in leadership and education, will you just share a little bit about yourself? You know, I've been teaching now for 31 years. I've been in education since 1991. I started as a high school history teacher, spent seven years as a classroom teacher, 11 years as a school-based administrator, and then two years in central office in a district position. And resigned from my position when my first book was published back in May of 2011. And for the last 11 years, it's been this work as a consultant, speaker, author, uh, and it's just been uh, a, a pretty crazy ride and, and certainly an enjoyable and very rewarding work, as I mentioned earlier. And the work in assessment really began in 2003. I was an assistant principal in a middle school. I was teaching three out of six periods every day. And in, in that capacity was when I began to explore assessment. And as the cliche goes, the rest is history. 18 years later, we're still you know, heading in that direction and continuing to explore the nuances of, of what assessment really is all about. Was that scary to step away and, and go toward the consulting and, and author profession? It, yeah, I would be lying to say if it wasn't that it wasn't scary. I think, you know, at the time I had a 14-year-old daughter and an 11-year-old son. And so, you know, responsibilities with your family. And But at the same time, what I really came to terms with was that I still had 20 years of experience. I still had my, you know, resume, my reputation, my my expertise, all of that. And should this work in consulting, you know, not work out for whatever reason, I'm still employable. It may not be exactly where I want to be, but I know that someone would hire me. So it was one of those things where I wasn't risking a lot in terms of, you know, yes, it would have been a hiccup and I I certainly would have had to gone back to find a job somewhere. But what I started to realize, I, I was really just risking professional pride and ego. And, you know, that's just so what, and, and it's important that, um, you just kind of get over that. And, you know, I knew it could either fail miserably or, or be the best decision I ever made. And, uh, so far it's been a a fabulous journey for sure. I would say you made the right decision. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) You do wonderful work. I feel like I did too. So Tom, I'm curious too, because you had a leadership title 
and now you yeah. stepped away and you have various roles, but you're still in the world of education. Do you feel like you still are able to lead in some facet? Yeah, I do. I think that it's a it's a different kind of leadership, right? It's mm -hmm. uh, when you're working with a school district and you're part of the, you know, I was part of the senior management executive team responsible for leading the direction of the school district. And, right. and uh, you're, you're going deeper with one school division. The interesting part of the work now is that I literally do speak with teachers and principals and superintendents on a weekly basis. And so it's really given me a breadth of experience and, and interactions with folks who are, you know, inspiring me in terms of the leadership work they do. I've learned a lot from them just in my interactions and watching how they organize things. I have my 31 years of experience, which is getting to the point now where there aren't a lot of people in the room who have, I mean, there are some, but there aren't a lot of people in the room who have more experience than I do. And that right. wasn't always the case, you know, 15 you know, 20 years ago, but uh, certainly now, you know, you have that institutional kind of historical memory of how things have evolved, like the standards movement of the 1990s and, and how assessment has kind of evolved over the last, you know, number of decades. There is that kind of experience that you bring to the table. And I think when you have quality experience, because I don't think it's just about years, Josh, it's there are years of experience. And you know, the expression is that you can either have 31 years of experience or you can have one year's experience 31 years in a row. And, and for me, it's about having 31 years of experience where there's balance. I think there's perspective. I think, you know, I still have lots to learn and I still love to learn about education. And I still do take a lot from the experiences I have. But I, I think I, I think it's just a different kind of leadership and in, in having a voice and a platform to to maybe nudge people in a certain direction about their assessment practices. I love the fact that you aren't set in your ways, that you're always trying to learn. And, yeah. you know, I think your writing shows that also, and that's probably a good segue to, to talk about your new book. Yeah. I mentioned it earlier, Concise Answers to Frequently Asked Questions. So if you wouldn't mind just kind of giving us a, a brief description of the book and how you're trying to help educators sure. in the world of assessment. Well, it's the longest title of any book I've ever authored or co-authored. It's to finish it. It's concise answers to frequently asked questions about assessment and grading. That is the title. There you go. And what, one of the things that we did, so Cassandra Erkins and Nicole Dimich are my writing partners, and we are the, the leaders of the Solution Tree Assessment Center. And it is, in essence, our six assessment tenants framework that the work of our our center is based on. We teamed up with Katie White and J.D. Miller, two prolific educators. Katie and herself is a, is a prolific author of a number of books around assessment as well and a fellow Canadian. And the five of us got together and we said, you know, there has to be a resource for teachers, for principals, for superintendents, something where they can get a quick answer to the question. So we put our heads together and we said, okay, let's organize around our six tenants. So just for listeners, our six tenants of assessment center around assessment purpose, knowing what your purpose is, assessment architecture is how we talk about assessment design, choosing your right assessment method, accurate interpretation, especially when you're using rubrics and making scoring inferences. We call it instructional agility. That's the fourth, making real-time instructional maneuvers would be, and they're not really ranked in any order, but it's communication of assessment results, whether that be through feedback or grading. And then the sixth one is called student investment, which is really the end game of, of the assessment work, meaning our work in assessment is not about becoming an expert. Our work in assessment is about becoming an expert so we can teach the students how to do this on their own behalves. That's really the goal. So we, we looked at those six tenants and we asked ourselves, what questions do we get on a weekly basis as we are out doing our consulting work and speaking with teachers and people are raising their hands in our workshops and, and bringing questions forward? What are some of the most common questions we've received 
that people really do need answers for. And so the first step for us was to identify a, a list of questions that fell under each tenant, under the umbrella of each tenant. We know there's a lot of overlap. The tenants are not silos. They're not isolated ideas around assessment, but we try to say, where does this best fit? And then we went about the business of developing short two to four paragraph answers for each of the questions. And the goal there was not to provide research to the nth degree. We were, we were not trying to load this book with citations. And we mentioned that in the introduction, which is to say, look, every one of our answers is research validated and found in that foundation. You can find the research that supports it. We will make a few citations throughout the book, but we're trying not to make this resource heavy or a, a citation heavy, I should say. We're trying to make this a book where you could flip to any page, find the question that you were just asked, get a two to four paragraph answer to have some semblance of how you might respond. So that's in essence, the nature of the book. All right. So I've gone through several of your trainings, some, you know, as a keynote speech or a full day, multiple day classes or whatnot, where you speak. And I always wonder like, what are the, the main concepts that people really struggle with when you're presenting your information in regards to assessment? Well, you know, that's a, it's a good question. It's a tough question to answer, but I would say that there are certainly some pressure points. Yeah. I, I think this is where we sort of level up, if you will, to use another kind of cliche expression. Yeah. And it is, it is the time for the nuances of assessment. You know, assessment gets talked about in ways right now, especially on social media in almost, you know, pithy little slogans and catchphrases that don't represent the nuances of, of what the research really represents. And so I think sometimes a little bit of knowledge can be not a dangerous thing, but can inhibit someone's ability to kind of grow in, in those nuances because we think it's very simple. And I know we crave simple, right? Because assessment can be a very complex topic and there's a breadth and depth to it that can sometimes feel overwhelming for people. And I recognize that myself. And it was that for me 18 years ago, but it's getting to those nuances and understanding that things are never as absolute as they get talked about. So finding the time for the nuances would be one for sure. Time is a factor. Finding the time to utilize formative assessment and, and use it instructionally. And I think sometimes people have this idea that a formative assessment is just a summative that doesn't count. It's a thing, it's a tangible, it's a stapled packet that I score. And so that's where teachers often have trouble with the idea of time because they say, Tom, if I'm always assessing, because we would talk about assessment as an ongoing day-to-day, -day, even minute by minute, you know, Dylan William has talked about that for years and we've picked up on that, but that is in a, in a very informal way. That's not quantified, that's not graded. That is information that we use to make instructional decisions to be what I called earlier instructional agility, right? So it's understanding that nuance, that formative assessment isn't just a summative that doesn't count. I could put a prompt on the screen, have my students get into groups of three or four and start talking about the question or the prompt that I put on the screen. How would you solve this problem? Or what would do you think would be the right approach to this dilemma? And go around the room and listen to them. And by listening to them, I'm gaining an understanding of what their understanding is, what their misunderstandings are, and what I can do instructionally to move forward. So the, the time factor and the nuances are often, I mean, there are a lot, I could go on 
for a long time. But I mean, though the time factor is a big one. Where do I find the time to give feedback? And I think sometimes teachers think every moment of feedback has to be epic or monumental. And you're really just trying to cause more learning in, in highlighters and questions and cues and prompts and things we can do to cause that. So I think it's I think it's the going from good to great. Uh, you know, it, I think it was Jim Collins who once said that, you know, good is the enemy of great. And I think sometimes we get good at our assessment practices, but to be great, we've got to get to those nuances. Yeah, I agree. And the time piece, maybe this correlates with the feedback category that you were talking about, but I, I feel like teachers want to give feedback as much as possible, but they don't feel like they have enough time. Is there right. any strategies that you provide to teachers in regards to that subject? Yeah, absolutely. There's two two fundamentals that I often see with teachers just as a precursor to the strategy that for all the right reasons, I think these are two common errors when it comes to feedback. I, you know, I don't love the word error, but sure. let's just call it that. Yeah. One is I think teachers are guilty of giving kids too much feedback. And you always gauge too much by the proportion of time you're prepared to give kids to act upon the feedback. So if you're not going to give students a lot of time to act upon the feedback, then you should limit the amount of feedback because feedback that I can't act upon is almost counterproductive because I see that I have a lot to work on and yet my teacher's not giving me any time to work on it. If you're going to give the students an extended period of time, 15 minutes, 20 minutes of the next day to work on the feedback, then sure, you can provide them with more. But if you're not going to provide that, then look at what is most pressing. Okay, so that's the first one. The second one would be that teachers, again, for all the right reasons, are often guilty of doing too much of the thinking for, for the students. So when you think about feedback, I often ask participants in workshops this question. I said, are you providing feedback that causes thinking or are you giving your students a set of directions? Because if you're giving them a set of directions, then it's your learning, like your, it's your thinking yep. because you're just telling them what to do as opposed to saying, here's what I want you to consider. So to that point, here's you know, the strategies that utilize, I mentioned earlier, highlighters. Just highlight passages in different colors to signal. For example, there's a strategy where you would highlight passages in a writing assignment in green, and that's green for go, like a stoplight, right? I want you to keep doing this, but it's up to the student to figure out where on the rubric am I referencing when I highlight that passage in green. And then maybe if it's online, you could use red, but if it's tangible, then maybe a pink highlighter says, this is something that needs addressing. And again, where in the rubric am I looking? So the time factor is, is mitigated when you're just simply highlighting passages as you consume students' work, or it's a question at the end of, end of the assignment, or it's a highlighter in a math problem that says, you know, there's a strategy called catch and correct or find it and fix it. So if a student was solving an algebraic expression, you would highlight within the question where their question was correct up to and including the highlighted line, their error is somewhere beneath the highlighted line, their job is to catch the error and correct it. So I find that that feedback that causes think thinking but is a little more cryptic, that causes the students to have to do a little bit of investment in their, that learning can be most productive. Now, there is an asterisk for this, and that is if you have very novice learners, you may need to be a little bit more direct with them because they may not know what they don't know, and therefore they won't have that perspective. Because I think one of the most important things we forget about feedback is that feedback is most effective when it addresses partial understanding, what John Hattie calls faulty interpretation. So there has to be some semblance of understanding to, for feedback to be its most effective. So if the student has authentically no understanding, they're very much at the novice level, you probably need to be a little bit more hands-on. 
Yeah, and I think that kind of brings me to my next question, which is because I feel like this book really is trying to answer a bunch of different questions that folks, you know, have. Yeah. So it might be a pretty good resource to start with, especially if you're, you know, beginning your journey as far as assessment or trying to improve in some way. But I'm I'm wondering about misconceptions or what are some main misconceptions that folks have in regards to assessment? Well, I think one misconception I often run into is about assessment methods. I think sometimes people either forget or aren't aware that assessment methods are not interchangeable. All of these misunderstandings are under this sort of umbrella of we want to elicit accurate information about where students are. I sometimes, you know, jokingly in a workshop, I'll say to people, if you don't care about accuracy, then you can do whatever you want, like have at it in your grade book, do whatever you want with your assessments. But if accuracy matters to you, and of course I know it does, then you have to follow some rules and principles. And one of them is that you don't just get to choose your assessment method by flipping a coin. Mm -hmm. Some assessment methods are a better fit for certain standards or learning targets, and therefore we have to be conducive to choosing the right method. Now, once you're inside the method, I'll give you an example of this in a moment. Once you're inside the method, you have complete autonomy over the format. Mm -hmm. So the method would be something like selected response. If we had a standard that was lower on the taxonomy and was you know, fairly simple, straightforward, recall, binary kind of standard, then multiple choice would be a, or a selected response would be a very good method for that. Now, once I've decided, hey, selected response, I could choose multiple choice. I could decide true, false. I could decide on matching. There's lots of different formats, right? So between selected response and constructed response, inside each of those methods, there are a lot of different formats. So the good news for teachers is there aren't that many methods to choose from. There are technically only two. There's a third one called performance assessment, but that's a subsidiary of constructed response when you're trying to replicate the authentic context within which the learning is meant to be applied. So really students either choose an answer or they develop an answer. And if that developed answer is something that is authentic, then it's a performance assessment and something that has you know longitudinal stamina and longevity and all of that. Mm -hmm. So that's one assessment methods is one. Another one would be about, you know, rubrics and how epic they have to be. And, and uh, rubrics would be one where I would look at and think the common, again, errors or mistakes I see with rubrics is teachers try to make rubrics either into a checklist. Yeah. So yeah. they'll have a number of bullet points in them, or they try to describe every possible iteration. So I often say to people, your rubrics aren't answer keys and they aren't checklists. They are descriptions of quality that you have to interpret. I mentioned interpretation, right? You have to infer that that student's demonstration matches that description. And so that really is something that, that gets misunderstood. I think, you know, a lot of talk, of course, is around grading and the misunderstandings around grading. And there are folks out there that take a fairly sort of extreme stance that, that grades are useless and have no utility. I, I would not subscribe to that. I think there's, in a lot of cases, implementation errors result in grades being meaningless and, and, uh, and really not carrying any sort of information, but uh, that's another mis misconception as well, the, the grading piece. So there, I mean, there are many, but those are just a few. Yeah. I feel like we could talk about grading for another hour. <laughs> we can have even, another episode, Josh. Not even touch, you know, the, the bulk of it. Yeah. yeah that's right. a hot topic for sure. Well, I want to talk about another book that is coming yeah. out in August and September. And I know yeah. it's one of the, the tenants that you talked about, which is yeah. in regards to student investment through assessment. Right. So I would love to learn about, you know, what's sure. coming out shortly. 
It's, it's part of our series. So when Cassandra, Nicole, and I first got together as a writing team, we started with a book called Essential Assessment. And that's where we kind of outlined our six assessment tenants framework. And then from there, we set out to write a book about each tenant. The only tenant we did not write a book about yet or, or are not going to write a book about is assessment purpose. We didn't think there was enough there to write a book about the differences between formative and summative assessment. That book would have been you know, 15, 20 years ago, but I think we're far along. So we wrote the book, Growing Tomorrow's Citizens in Today's Classrooms, about uh, assessing seven critical 21st century competencies. This is student investment is really what we often refer to, again, as that pinnacle. And I mentioned this when I described the tenant, which is that this is the ultimate outcome. It would be our contention, of course, that developing your assessment literacy, your understanding of sound assessment practices would be the most efficient and effective professional investment any teacher can make. Assessment is the engine that drives everything. But that's not the end game. Again, the end game is not a teacher's expertise. An end game is the teacher's expertise so that they can teach the students how to do this on their own behalves. And it really comes down to this symbiotic relationship between assessment and the self-regulation of learning. And what we found through the research is that there, there are many different models, but many of the popular kind of really tangible, easy to, not easy to implement, but easier to sort of understand models of self-regulation sort of contemplate self-regulation as a series of phases that, that students go through. Barry Zimmerman, for example, talks about three phases, the forethought phase, the performance phase, the reflection phase. And what we find is that those three phases align perfectly with the assessment cycle. So for example, the forethought phase, goal setting, efficacy, all of that around, you know, before I'm learning, aligns perfectly with the Roy Sadler question from 1989, where am I going, right? The three questions Sadler sort of coined in 1989, where am I going? Where am I now? How do I close the gap? Align perfectly with those three phases. So the forethought phase, where am I going? The performance phase where I'm self-monitoring and I'm using strategies for self-control aligns perfectly with the where am I now phase. And then the reflection phase aligns perfectly with the how do I close the gap? And so the symbiotic relationship between assessment and self-regulation is that you can use assessment as an input meaning the assessment cycle feeds the student's ability. It's the substance the student will use to become more self-regulatory about their learning. But in exchange for that, because the student is becoming more self-regulatory about their learning, their assessment results increase. And so that's the symbiotic nature of that relationship. So we wrote a book about, again, centered on our tenants, but how each of the other five tenants contributes to that student investment piece because that really is the ultimate outcome of our assessment work. I can't wait to read it. That's awesome. <laughs> well, well, you'll get your copy as soon as it's out, Josh. I, I'll send you, send you a I'm copy. I'm eating it up. I, you can probably see I was taking notes while you're talking. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. And I love what you're doing, Tom, just not only in what you do speaking Thank in your you. classes, but then also I want to talk about a project that is near and dear to my heart because it's telling the Teach Better Podcast Network, which is the Tom yeah. Shimmer Podcast. I, I love <laughs> listening to you know you each week and, and all you. of the variety of guests that you have on. But you know, for those who haven't pushed that subscribe button to your podcast, uh, we just share a little bit about that project. 
Sure. You know, it's it, uh, it's almost two years now since I started the podcast and it's a labor of love. And I've, I've been so fortunate to have so many just incredible guests on the podcast. You know, there's a little kind of a formula that I follow. Uh, the podcast opens with me talking about a current event or an issue or me ranting about something where I'm just, you know, the old man yelling at clouds and it's time for me to get stuff off my chest. The middle is the bulk of it, which is the interview. And, and then the end of it from tying into the conversation we've had today so far is that assessment corner. I call it assessment corner. I field questions from listeners. I, you know, I'll, I'll pick topics that have come up during the week if no one emails me a question. Uh, and I'll just kind of riff on it and, uh, and talk about how I would answer the question and some of the nuances again. So trying to help people grow their understanding of assessment. I don't think I have all of the answers, but I have some for sure. And there are some things where you get to make choices. And and this is, I say, you know, this is how I would do it. So Mm -hmm. it's obviously an educationally focused podcast. Assessment's a big part of it, but we've delved into a number of different topics. You, you, of course, Josh, were on the podcast about a year ago when we talked about trauma-informed practices. Um, So many great guests have been on and and looking forward to the lineup continuing. Uh, I'm on an every other week schedule right now in the summer. I'll get back to the weekly episodes come the fall when uh, I think people are back into work mode and more conducive to listening to a weekly episode. Right now, everyone's in summer mode. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know what day it is. So that's, yeah, exactly. That's where I'm well, at. You don't. That's your luxury for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Love it. I remember those days. Yeah. I have to know what day it is because I have flights coming up. So yeah, that's true. You are yeah. much more on my schedule right now. You know, you talk about the yelling at people get off my lawn type thing, but the don't at me segment is one of my favorites. So thanks. please keep doing that. Of course, you provide a ton of value in regards to the world of assessment and answer so many questions. So um, if anyone's looking for more information in regards to assessment and grading, definitely check out the Tom Shimmer podcast. And you can also find that on uh, the Teach Better podcast network, which is on teachbetter.com slash podcast. Tom. Absolutely. You are amazing, my friend, and I always love giving actionable items to my listeners. So if there's any aspiring or current listener, you know, listening and wants to grow in in their, you know, techniques and strategies in the world of assessment, what can they do tomorrow or next week to, you know, better their skills? It's hard to say that there's one thing because you've got to start where you are and you've got to take inventory on on where your practices are. But I I think assessment really does begin with why, Mm -hmm. that purpose question. I know it's not the most complicated part of assessment. Sometimes architecture is that. But I'm going to give two things that that I'll talk about. First, purpose. Every time you assess your students, ask yourself the simple question, why? Why do I want this information? What do I intend to do with that information? That is how you will inherently define whether or not that it's assessment is intended to be formative in its purpose or summative in its purpose, right? So when you ask yourself, why? Why am I assigning this homework? Well, I'm assigning this homework because I want my students to practice this new skill. Well, you've just said it out loud, practice. Therefore, you've described the formative purpose because I want to give them feedback on how they could advance their learning. If you say this, this assessment is designed to verify the degree to which the student has met the learning goal, then you've described the summative purpose. So I think purpose is really important. The other piece I would say is teachers would have to, this is the good news, sort of good news, bad news story with assessment, the good news. Teachers would almost have to be intentionally incompetent not to cover their standards by topic. Like that, that is something I never worry about whether or not a teacher is teaching to the standard by topic. But the next level is, am I assessing that standard at the right cognitive complexity? 
Am I actually asking the students to read the, reach the right depth of thinking, right? Rather than just covering it by topic. So it's really digging into your standards and understanding where the verb is, what the verb describes, which helps you with both the cognitive rigor and the assessment method, but then the depth of knowledge, the DOK is right behind the verb that kind of tells you the depth of thinking required to do what the verb is asking the students to do. So how deep does my explanation need to be? How, what is the depth of my description or things like that, right? So if you can get nuanced with understanding your standards cognitive complexity, your assessments are going to be that much more on point, which is going to give you more reliable information upon which to make decisions. All right. So if someone's listening, which I'm assuming a lot of people are just eating this up and they want to learn more, how would they connect with you on social media or, you know, book you to come to an event or yeah. bring them to their district? Sure. Uh, you know, uh, social media for sure. Probably too many social media accounts, but uh <laughs> Uh, I've got two Twitter accounts, one for me at Tom Shimmer. Uh, then the podcast is at Tom Shimmer Pod. Uh, it's at Tom Shimmer Podcast, both on Instagram and TikTok. Um, and then there's LinkedIn, there's Facebook, all of that. My email address is tshimmer at live.ca. If you email me, if you're interested in connecting about about work. And if you're interested in having me sort of work with your district, et cetera, I can connect you with people for all of the other stuff that needs to be worked out, but we can, we can connect that way. So lots of different ways to, to connect. And if, if folks are just looking for quick answers to questions, you know, DM me, uh, send me an email. I'm happy to, to, to get you a question. And uh, as well as the book, I mean, the book is really designed uh, to, to do what all of us have done at some point, which is kind of figure out how to answer some of these questions, especially for stakeholders. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. I remember 18 years ago, driving home from work and literally rehearsing my answers to points of pushback, practicing in the car, you know, and that's really what the spirit of this book is, which is to just try to help people get a sense of how they could give a concise answer to a question that they'll often get. So um, connect, DM me, uh, whatever I can do to help support people, Josh, uh, any of your listeners out there, uh, happy to do it. Most definitely. And of course, I'll have everything in the show notes for the yep. listeners. And uh, you can click on the link to access all of Tom's books. I'll try and put several in there. And then, of course, definitely get Tom out to your district. Because like I said, I've Thank had you. multiple districts bring Tom out. And it has been a wealth of knowledge. Just today in my conversation with you, I'm, I'm feverishly just writing notes <laughs> here. Um, and I feel that way Thank every you, time I... I have a conversation or, or see you speak. So make sure that you're connecting with Tom. Check out his podcast and his books. And Tom, like I said, it is always a joy and a privilege to speak with you. And I'm just so proud that you would come back on to the Aspire to Lead podcast again. Josh, uh, always a thrill to talk to you. I, I enjoy our time. Looking forward to our next dinner together at some point down the road. So thanks again for having me. Are you excited that in-person conferences are back? I know I am. In fact, I'm excited to announce that I'll be at the 2022 Teach Better Conference this October 14th and 15th in Akron, Ohio. I'll be recording episodes live in podcast row, attending sessions, speaking, and connecting with a whole bunch of amazing educators. It would be awesome if you could join us. Head over to teachbetterconference.com slash register and use the code ASPIRE2022 to save $50 off your two-day registration. I hope to see you in October.